St. Patrick's Day weekend, March 20th, 2005, Dublin, Ireland. After drinking and doing drugs, two sisters murder their mother's boyfriend after a confrontation. When the deed is done, they dismember the body and dispose of it in a canal. It will take months before anyone is held accountable, and it will take the heavy weight of a guilty conscience for anybody to confess. This is the story of Linda and Charlotte Mulhall, the Scissor Sisters. Hey y'all, I'm Chris Calvert. And I'm her husband, Rob Potter. Welcome to Hitch to Homicide. For better or worse. Till death do us part. Everybody. Yes, welcome, welcome, welcome. And for our Hindi speaking friends in uh, India, Svagat Kirana, Svagat Kirana, Svagat Kirana. There you go. You're getting so good at these. <laughs> I don't know if I'm getting good, but just you know, <laughs> pick languages that people don't know and they won't know if you've pronounced it right or not. <laughs> oh, somebody will come tell us <laughs> we true. didn't do it right. That's true. That always happens. That's true. For sure. But that's for our India friends. Well, that's wonderful. There you go. Well, wherever you're listening, be sure to like, rate, and review. That helps other people to find us. And if you're watching on our new YouTube channel. Yes. Just hit that subscribe button below. And we've hit like 111 subscribers I know. in one month. Look at I that. know. So that little crowd is growing. Yep. We love that. Yeah, it's fun. That's, it's amazing. Having a good time. Yep. And if you want to join our closed Facebook group, The In-Laws and Outlaws, yes. just go to Facebook and type in H2H, In-Laws and Outlaws. We'll pop up. Yep. Answer a couple questions and you're in. We have a great time in there. It's a wonderful place to hang out, especially <laughs> if you're into true crime. Yeah, there are a lot of funny people in there, too. Yeah, everybody's a comedian <laughs> in the in-laws and outlaws. Yeah, if it makes me laugh out loud, you know it's really funny. Yeah, and they have the same kind of sense of humor that you have about true crime. Yeah. So if you're not an in-law and outlaw yet, come on, go in. do it. Yep. Yeah. Well, Rob, do you know what Friday is? Ah. It's St. Patty's Day. It's St. Patrick's Day on Friday. <laughs> yes, I'm wearing my green. And I'm wearing my orange because every day St. Patty's Day for me. So I know. I'm, I know. For, since I'm Irish. My Irish, my redheaded Irish yeah. husband, the ginger. Yeah. yeah. I know. I got to put him under the umbrella, keep him out of the sun. <laughs> I know. That's yeah. a lot. I detonate. <laughs> No, you don't. No, you don't. But I want to stop and brag on you a little bit on okay. St. Patrick's Day right. because you did a project called uh, I Am Patrick. Yeah, the film I Am Patrick. And you got an Emmy nomination for it. So, I did. So that yeah. score is very near and dear to our hearts. Yes, yes. If you want to go listen to it, you can find it on Spotify or Apple Music yeah. or all the music places. What am I missing? Pandora. You can go to the Rob Podorf station. It's yeah, pretty cool. Every streaming service out there, my distributor, they've got it on everything. So, And if you can find the film, watch it. John Rhys-Davies, who was in um, Indiana Jones and Lord of the Rings and a bunch of other stuff, uh, he's he's absolutely wonderful in this film. So, yeah. 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 It's amazing. Yeah. It's, a real, it's a great story. So if you have a chance to do that, go listen to the music. It's wonderful. Okay. Yeah. Thanks for the shout out. I'm finished bragging right. on you. All right. There it is. Cool. Well, before we get started on our St. Patrick's Day case mm -hmm. that takes place in Ireland, I'm so proud of myself for picking this. I have a theme today. <laughs> I have a theme. I want to thank some sources. Crime and Investigation, The Independent, Murderpedia, Daily Motion, The Irish Mirror, Gore Culture, and the book, the Torso in the Canal, The Inside Story on Ireland's Most Grotesque Killing wow. by John Mooney. Mm. I did read it, and I will have a link to that and all the other sources in the show notes. Nice. Well, you ready to do this? I am. All right. Let's do it. I'm going to start today's podcast with a limerick <laughs> because we're in Ireland. Really? Okay, cool. There once was a lady from... Okay. <laughs> Keep it clean. I'm sorry. And if you have a limerick you'd like to share with us oh. in the In-Laws and Outlaws, yeah. 
go in there this week and drop one or that could be dangerous. It could be, but that's okay. (laughs) Bring it on. But that's okay. And or in the comments of the YouTube. Okay. But here's my limerick today. Go for it. There once was a girl who intended to keep herself morally splendid and ascend into glory, which is quite a good story, except that's not how it ended. No, that's a good one. I know. And so appropriate. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, So appropriate for true crime. It's a true crime limerick. Nice. But limericks aren't actually from Ireland. Really? Yes. I did not know that. I thought they were. No. The poetic form originated in France and came to England in the 11th century. Shakespeare actually used this original form for drinking songs. Of course he did. In his plays. (laughs) Go Will Shakespeare. Old Billy was up for a good time whenever he could get it. (laughs) Well, now that I've got my limerick out of the way, I want to talk about this case. Linda and Charlotte Mulhall are two of the six children of Kathleen Ward and John Mulhall. Linda is born in 1975 and Charlotte is born in 1984. Okay. I have shoes older than Charlotte. (laughs) You have a lot of shoes. (laughs) Yes, I do. Stop telling on me. Well, I have have this much space in our walk-in closet. (laughs) The rest of them are shoes. Now he's really telling on me. The family grows up in the area of Tala in South Dublin, Ireland. Kathleen was born into the traveling community. And I did some research on this because lots of people think that all travelers are what we sometimes refer to as gypsies. But that's the Romani travelers that are gypsies. And she's an Irish traveler. Gotcha. And if you've ever seen my big fat gypsy wedding, (laughs) you kind of have an idea as to what this family might be like. Yep. The Mulhalls have three boys and three girls, six kids total, and almost all of them have been in trouble with the law at one point or another. Growing up, these kids saw their father treat their mother, Kathleen, poorly. Mm. There was a lot of verbal and physical abuse Mm, in this family. In 1996, a man who calls himself Farah Sawali Noor arrives in Ireland. He's actually paid human traffickers to get him out of his country. Oh, wow. And in January of 1997, he applies for refugee status with the Department of Justice in the name of Farah Noor. He tells everybody he is Somalian and that his family had been killed in Mogadishu. Oh, wow. In reality, he's Kenyan Hmm. and his family is very much alive. Really? He has a wife. He has children. Why did he He's left them all behind. He's not a good guy. Okay. He's a drug abuser, a murderer, an alcoholic, and a serious sexual deviant. And those are his good qualities. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. A year after he arrives in Ireland, he rapes a mentally disabled 16-year-old Chinese girl who was an Irish citizen. Hmm. The Department of Justice, Equality, and Law Reform in Ireland wanted Farah deported. Makes sense, right? Sure. Farah is a four-time convicted felon for intoxication, threatening and abusive behavior, and assault. And he had eight charges of disorder and assault, one involving a sexual assault where the police found a knife at the scene. He's convicted three different times, but he's never going to serve any jail time. Why? He's just an all-around great guy, right? He just gets out of it. Oh, jeez. But he wants to be an Irish citizen, and he is actually granted citizenship because he has fathered a child in Ireland. Okay, He's actually going to father three children in Ireland, and all of the mothers claimed that they were raped. Jeez. Again, not a nice guy. No, no. He's not going to get father of the year. Mm -mm. No. In 2003, Farah meets... Kathleen Mulhall at a nightclub. And Kathleen is a woman who is far from happy in her marriage because we already talked about the fact that her husband is abusive to her. Sure. Kathleen allows Farah to move into the family's home while she's still married <laughs> to John. How did John and agree their six to that? kids? Yeah. He's also living there with their six adult children. Oh, man. So that's got to be awkward. Yeah. 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 How's that going to work out for him? Well, here's how it worked out. Because John had had enough, her husband leaves and he moves to Cork and three of their children go with him and three children stay behind with Kathleen. The family just was basically split down the middle. Yeah. 
Sunday, March 20th, 2005, Linda and Charlotte Mulhall are hanging out in Dublin. It's the day before Charlotte's 21st birthday, and it's still St. Patrick's Day weekend in Dublin. Okay. So it's just one big old party going down. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But Charlotte and Linda are drinking heavily, as you might do on St. Patrick's Day weekend. Right, right. Linda's 37 years old. She's unemployed and had left school early, meaning she didn't finish school. And she has four children. By all accounts, Linda is a really good mom. The relationship she has with the kid's father, Wayne Kinsella, isn't that great. Wayne was also an abusive man who liked to beat his girlfriend and his four children. Mm. It was so bad that the children were actually taken from them and put into social services at one point. Wow. Wayne was a really, he was a really violent guy. And when I say violent, I mean violent. He never finished school either. And even Wayne's family members have said that he beat them. He physically abused his parents and even broke the jaw of one of his sisters. Good Lord. Yeah. Wow. Wayne's going to go to prison in 1996 for murder, and eventually he's released and commits murder again. He's jailed for life. Wow. So this is a little snapshot into Linda's life. Okay. Linda has a history of alcohol and drug abuse. And for a while, Linda was addicted to heroin. Mm. And she had some smaller offenses and convictions for stealing. Okay. Linda is drinking, but she's kicked her habit with heroin. Linda's also pregnant. Wow. Linda always seemed to be in a relationship with an abusive man. Hmm. She had few prospects, you know, very little parenting skills. She didn't know how to do it because she didn't have an example of how to do it. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Her sister Charlotte was 21. And just like her sister Linda, she had a history of drug and alcohol abuse as well. She also had a history of prostitution. Hmm. She had a bunch of minor convictions for criminal damage and sex work. Just didn't have the best upbringing. (laughs) <laughs> no, I mean, it's kind of hard. I think it's hard to escape that. So, yeah, yeah. yeah, you 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 parent the way you were parented. Sure. You act the way your family. Yeah, it's really hard to break that cycle. Yeah. These two sisters are drinking in Dublin, and these two call their mother, Kathleen, to meet them in town. So both Kathleen and Farah meet the girls in town at, where do you think they meet at? It's St. Patrick's Day weekend. Where would they meet at? Flanagan's. <laughs> I don't know. (laughs) They meet at a McDonald's. (laughs) Hi, McDonald's. They eat at a McDonald's. Okay. And when they arrive, Linda pulls out a bag of pills, MDMA, methylene dioxy methamphetamine, ecstasy. Wow. Now, this is a drug that alters your mood and perception of your surroundings, and it affects the dopamine, norepinephrine, and serotonin in the brain. That's easy for you to say. <laughs> that wasn't easy to say. Yeah. The high lasts between three and six hours, and lots of people take another dose as the first dose begins to wear off. Okay. When Kathleen and Farah meet them, Farah is wearing an Irish football team jersey, something he's worn all weekend long. So that's got to smell a bit gamey <laughs> at this point. Farah, take a shower, dude. Yeah. That's got foreshadowing. Uh-oh. So these four decide to buy a bottle of vodka and four Cokes to mix it in. I'm a vodka drinker. I don't think I've ever had a vodka and Coke. Yeah, that sounds nasty. But they don't have enough money to drink in a bar, so they're mixing their own drinks, and they're partying pretty hard most of the day. Now, the girls offer Kathleen, their mother, some X, and she takes it. And I want to tell you now, Kathleen acts more like a friend to her daughters than a mother. Not good. The three of them have alcohol and X on board. And Farah says, no thanks. He didn't want to take the ecstasy. Yeah. As the day wears on, these four make their way back to a flat that Kathleen is renting, and it's where Farah is living with her at Richmond Cottage's Summerhill. When they get back to the house, they take more ecstasy. Wow. And because Farah isn't taking the drug, Kathleen crushes it up, crushes the pill up, and puts it in Farah's drink. She wanted him to be on the same buzz as the rest of them. When Farah's ex kicks in, Linda and Farah are sitting on a love seat and Charlotte's sitting on the arm of the love seat. Farah's getting handsy with Linda. Mm. He's touching her in a sexual way. He's a sexual predator. Yeah. 
He's whispering in her ear and he's putting his arms around her waist. And Linda is not into it. Yeah, a sexual predator with uh, ecstasy. That's not a good combination. It's its not. And he has a history of, you know, rape. Yeah. I mean, what could go wrong? <laughs> well, what I'm about to tell you, everything okay. goes wrong. All right. Farrah whispers in Linda's ear that she's so much like her mother. And even more than that, she's so much like him because they're both dark creatures mm. or creatures of the night. Wow. And he's also whispering perverted things in her ear as well. Creepy. Kathleen starts yelling at Farah, and these two get in quite the kerfuffle. <laughs> then Linda is yelling at him to stop touching her. And Charlotte says, get your hands off my sister. If you've got a sister, you know, yeah. don't touch her. Yeah. Yep. Charlotte gets off the couch and picks up a box cutter, what they call a Stanley knife. Yeah. And she cuts Pharaoh across the throat. Oh, good grief. Yeah. He stumbles backwards into a bedroom that has bunk beds. Pharaoh hits his head on the edge of the bed and he goes down like a box of rocks. Wow. And it's at this point that Kathleen tells her daughters to, quote, kill him. Please kill him or he's going to kill me. Wow. So while he's on the ground, Linda is given a hammer by her mother and she starts beating him in the head. Oh my gosh. In fact, Linda is hitting him so hard in the head, she will leave marks on the floor. Charlotte continues to stab at Farah. She stabs him 27 times. I'm, I'm going to guess he's pretty much dead at this point. Not yet. What? Not yet. Oh. Hang on. Wow. And Linda keeps on bludgeoning him in the head. And the whole time she's screaming, is he dead? Is he dead? <laughs> is he dead? Wow. Well, when they finally realize that he is dead, they have the wherewithal, even in their drug and alcohol-fueled heads, to drag him into the bathroom because he is bleeding everywhere. I, I would think so, yeah. Yeah. The box cutter blows have punctured his lungs, ripped through his kidneys, and perforated his liver. Mm. Man. It's a box cutter. That's severe. I mean, I get pissed off when I cut my finger with a box cutter. <laughs> yeah. And they're like, they're dismantling him. Wow. I get upset when I poke myself with a fork in the dishwasher. <laughs> Sorry. Okay, go ahead. Once they get him into the bathroom, they're sc still screaming and they realize they're going to have to do something with this body. Yeah. But this bathroom is tiny, tiny. And according to Charlotte, their mother Kathleen suggests that they dismember the body. Uh. So they start to cut him up, but they don't really have any tools. So they're using what they have, this box cutter and a hammer. <laughs> they are literally beating his body apart and hacking away at his flesh wow. with a box cutter and a hammer. Well, it's a good thing Ireland doesn't have Thanksgiving. Uh, true. <laughs> but let me set the scene for you. This bathroom is so small. One is sitting on the toilet and the other one is in the shower. Yeah. So it's like one of those really small bathrooms. Yeah. But they're hacking away at his flesh with this box cutter. Mm. And then Charlotte gets a bread knife, a knife with a serrated edge. Oh, good grief. Yeah. They didn't think this out, did they? No, <laughs> not at all. Wow. They have to take turns dismembering him <sighs> because it is such hard work with these makeshift tools they have. There's no saw. There's no sharp knife. Just a box cutter and a bread knife and a hammer. Wow. <laughs> Ireland's uh, version of MacGyver. Now, they're... Ex <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Now, they're not going to agree on a lot of things that went down on this night, but the one thing the three of them do agree upon is that the mother, Kathleen, does not help to dismember Farah in any way. Mm. Charlotte starts to saw on his arms with the bread knife, and the girls take turns cutting and breaking the bones oh. with the hammer. Yeah. It was exhausting on both of them. Yeah. They were both just completely exhausted. Yeah. So they take more ecstasy. 
to get back to the dismembering. They need the drugs in order to stay high to keep on doing what they're doing. They're using towels and clothes to try to stop the flow of blood. It's not going well. (laughs) There's too much blood. And the human body has about a gallon and a half of it. And they're pretty much draining him dry. In order to get his legs off, they beat them with the hammer to break the femur. Mm. And then they wrench it with their hands to try to twist and break the bones as best they can. Just gross. And it just makes me think of like people when they eat chicken wings, you know? Yeah. They're cleaning the bone and they're like twisting. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> uh-huh. Um, um, yeah. Yeah. They're also flushing bits of Farah down the toilet. What they can get down the toilet, they're flushing down the toilet. How do you? Okay, never mind. Go ahead. Linda and Charlotte are sweating. They're covered in blood and pieces of flesh off of Farah's body. And it smelled bad. Yeah. It smelled terrible. I'm sure. And while they're dismembering him, Linda decides to cut off. No. His penis. Uh, she basically saws it off with the bread knife. Oh, God. To which Kathleen says, quote, he won't rape me again, mm. end quote. Yeah. And according to Linda, quote, I cut off his private parts, the long piece, not the balls, oh, end quote. Oh, gosh. <laughs> you know what's crazy about that? Even though he's dead, it still makes a guy cringe. Every man's cringing right <laughs> oh, now. Wow. Mm, yeah. With a... Think about a butter knife, like a, oh. it's a serrated edge. Okay, move on. Move sorry, on, move on. sorry, sorry. <laughs> we shouldn't be laughing. I'm sorry. No. It's just so terrible. Well, it's we're whistling in the dark here. Yeah. Yeah. It will take five hours to cut Farah into eight pieces. Good night. And they had to take turns resting in between cutting and hammering. When they're finished, they put the eight pieces into black garbage bags. Mm. And it's also about this time that the two girls call their father, John. He shows up around 1 a.m. and he looks inside one of the garbage bags and sees what it is. And he immediately goes outside of the house so he can throw up. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, I would too. (laughs) And then John yeets on out of there. He leaves right away. Y'all on on your own. Y'all on your own. John doesn't want anything to do with with what's happened. Yeah, big time. And you can't really blame him, you know? Linda and Charlotte put the black garbage bags into duffel bags, and they walk to the Royal Canal from their mother's flat. Mm. The three of them, Linda, Charlotte, and Kathleen, take several trips down to this royal canal where they empty the black bags into the water under the cover of a bridge and darkness. These things are going to float. That's called foreshadowing. Uh, (laughs) Very good. Very good. They decided not to put the head into the water because they're afraid if someone finds it, they're going to know who the body belongs to. (laughs) How considerate of them. I know, but they leave Farrah's clothes on. Socks, shirt, and underwear are all still on these body parts. So she cuts off his penis, but puts his tidy whities back on. Leave the gun, take the cannoli. (laughs) Yeah, uh, what a cannoli. When they put the final piece of Farah into the canal, they start to worry that someone will recognize a scar that he had on his arm. But girls, it's too late now. It's too late. When they get back to Kathleen's flat, they see that the bathroom and the bedroom are covered (laughs) in blood and tiny pieces of flesh. Yeah, Molly Maids is not going to clean that up. (laughs) (laughs) Shout out to Molly Maids. Farrah's blood soaked the carpets, the linoleum, and the baseboards of the floor. And the carpet that is close to the bunk beds where he hit his head, it's also covered in blood. Yeah, you can't can't get rid of that. Yeah, it's all soaked in blood because that's where they started beating the ever-living, loving crap out of him. And the towels they'd used to mop up all the blood flow while they were dismembering him had actually left stains on the floor. So the the material had so much blood in it, that was leaving a stain on the floor. So Charlotte and Linda start cleaning, frantically. 
And remember, they've not probably slept in about 24 hours at this point. And they start cleaning up using bleach. And this goes on for hours. And they stay up without sleep. Mm. Now, I am a crazy person not taking ecstasy when I don't get sleep. (laughs) So you can imagine what they feel like. When they're finished, they put the head in a bag. And at first, they leave the head in the back garden of the number 17 cottage in their neighborhood. Then the next day, Linda and Charlotte know they have to dispose of this head someplace different than where they put the body. So they take the head in a backpack and walk into town, stopping to eat salad rolls at a supermarket on Summerhill Parade. Well, a girl's got to eat. Yeah. (laughs) They've got a severed head in their bag. I've had lots of things in my bag, but yeah, yeah, a severed head. It wasn't one of them. But they get these uh, salad rolls, and I had to look up what a salad roll was. And it's a sandwich made with egg and onion or egg and tomato, Mm, something that you would love. I know. When I read that, I was like, oh, Rob would love that. (laughs) But they're walking around, and they're eating, and they can be seen on CCTV doing this with the bag on their shoulders. There's a head in the bag. Wow. Then they take a bus to Tala with the head in the bag. Didn't this thing smell? You know what? I thought the same thing, but I do believe, well, I know he's in a, he's in another bag inside. Uh, They probably got him in a plastic bag. Yes. They've got him in a plastic bag because otherwise, I mean, you know, there'd be bits of flesh in the backpack, but they take this bus to Tala with this head. And when they arrive, they walk through the square shopping center to Tymon North Park. And they walk around and they found this park bench. They're, they couldn't decide where to bury the head. Jeez. And it's at this point that Charlotte just, she just effing loses her mind. And she gets down on the ground and she just starts digging a hole by this park bench. Out in public. Out in public. Yeah, they've just walked around aimlessly trying to decide. Wow. And, they, you know, she's just had it. Okay. And Charlotte buries the head, and she doesn't even do a very good job of it. Like, his head is kind of sticking out. <laughs> but they're starting to sober up, and Linda is pregnant, and the event is taking its toll on her. Yeah. Hmm. I mean, when I read that, it was taking a toll on her. Yeah. <laughs> you think? Yeah, she's pregnant, she's drinking, she's doing... Molly, she's dismembering a body. That's a, yeah. that's that's a busy night. So what do you think they do after they get the head in the in the grave, in the shallow grave in the park? Um go to a theme park. They <laughs> go on another drinking binge <laughs> to try to forget what they've just done. Wow. And Linda in particular did not do well with the events that had just transpired. I'm sure. But Charlotte and Kathleen go to Hollyhead to drink, and Linda actually loses the baby. She miscarries. Now, Charlotte is able to get on with her life after this, but Linda is haunted by what happened. They not only killed a man, they painstakingly cut him apart. And Linda has a little bit of PTSD from the whole ordeal. Which I would think if you had the tools to actually dismember a body, it would be, you would have PTSD from that. But instead, I mean, they're hammering away at him. That night at 630, Marie, Linda, and Charlotte's sister walks in the door from her job. Charlotte is drunker than Cootie Brown. (laughs) And Charlotte confesses to her sister Marie what's happened. Oh, wow. But she tells her that they cut Farah into two pieces and buried him on either side of the Royal Canal. But the story is so far-fetched, and Charlotte's drunk, so Marie is like, Yeah, yeah, tell, whatever. Me, tell me another one. Whatever. She doesn't believe it, right. and she doesn't give it another thought. Okay. Just hours after murdering Farah and placing the parts in the Royal Canal, the torso floated to the surface. Oh, no. Why? The air in Farah's lungs made him buoyant. In fact, in their drunken and drug-fueled heads, they'd probably chosen the worst part of the canal to dump the body parts in because the area that they picked had clear water. And loads of people walking past the same spot all day long, all night long. Wow. Look, Mommy, there's a torso. (laughs) It's almost like that. 
A woman named Margaret Gannon saw the torso floating in the water just hours after they dumped the body. She sees this black plastic bag wrapped in brown tape floating in the water. And she sees it the next day, Tuesday, the 22nd of March. She thinks the bag looks like now it has a body inside of it. Wow. And others think there are parts of a mannequin floating in the canal. That's what they think it is. Mm. They think it's a mannequin that somebody has dumped in the canal. On the night of March 30th, 10 days after they murder and dismember Farah, someone else sees a leg floating down the Royal Canal. Mm. Peter Steinle is walking beside the canal when he sees almost all of the body parts floating. He sees an arm and a hand and a second arm and two lower legs with feet and the feet have socks on them. Wow. The torso, which is wearing a football jersey from an Ireland soccer team, is clearly visible. Okay. But there's no head. And the Garda Shahana, the Irish police, mm-hmm. they go to the media for help. After they get this body out of the canal, they put him all together and they go to the media for help. Wow. And interestingly enough, at first, they didn't know he was an African man because his skin was so bleached from floating in the water yeah. for 10 days. Oh, sure, yeah. So people have seen his body, but they thought it's a mannequin. So a day after it happens, they see his body and nobody's done anything with it. Okay. It's 10 days before they start fishing his body parts out of the canal. Wow. At home, Linda and Charlotte are watching the news, and they see the body parts have been found. <laughs> and these two are freaking oh, out. wow. Okay. Yeah. And they drink as much alcohol as they can. That'll to, make it go away. To quiet their sense of terror. Jeez. Linda did not want to go to jail. She did not want to be away from her four children. And Charlotte just didn't want to go to jail. Right. And these two are in a constant state of... A fear. Yeah, I would be too. Yeah. And at the morgue, they're piecing this body together and he's missing a head. Wow. And on autopsy, each body part is examined and a pathologist noticed that the torso still contained most of the soft tissue that surrounds the stomach. Okay. Examination of the torso revealed in excess of 22 stab wounds on the front and the rear of the torso. Amazing. And whoever had done this to the body had done so with enormous ferocity. Wow. But he's missing a head and a penis. Actually, he's missing both heads. <laughs> Sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> but this body has no defensive wounds, you know, on the hands or the arms. Yeah. So they're thinking this is this is a big man. Yeah. No defensive wounds. Yeah. Was he he wasn't conscious when they did this to him? Yeah. But it's during autopsy that they realize that this is an African man. So the police start asking around and canvassing members of the black community in Dublin. They also think that this might be a ritual killing because there had been a torso in the Thames River in England that had been a ritual killing. And so they're wondering, is this part of that? I mean, they really didn't have any place to start with this. But here's who's on the team. Detective Sergeant Jerry McDonald, Detective Dave O'Brien, Detective Adrian Murray, and Detective Dan Kenna. All great, great, great Irish names. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, they are. (laughs) They start compiling all the evidence, and they're trying to figure out who is this person? Who is this body belong to? Mm -hmm. They put out a description of all the body parts. They gave interviews with all the media to keep the story out there. And finally, they offered a 10,000 pound reward to anybody who could give them information that would lead to an arrest. They also show some of the clothing the body parts were wearing when they fished it out of the canal, including an Irish football team shirt. Ah. Why do I have a feeling that this uh, football team shirt is going to come into play here? Because that was foreshadowed. There you go. That's why. Okay. I'm with you. (laughs) Linda is panicking. And Linda's a woman who had a history of panic attacks. So this isn't doing her mental state any good. No favors. Linda decides she needs to make sure no one finds the head. So she takes her son's backpack gets on the bus, goes back to the park, (laughs) digs up the head, and puts it back in the backpack. Oh, man. She's also packed a bottle of vodka with her to help her get through the day because she knows what she has to do. She walks as far as a place called 
Britta's. Then she apparently takes the head into the brush. She falls to her knees, kissing the bag and telling the head that she is sorry. Wow. Yes. She's talking to him. Wow. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe some therapy for Linda. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. Linda's on the lunatic fringe for sure. She drinks the bottle of vodka and spends the next few hours sitting with Farah's head. She pleads with him to forgive her. And she says that she wishes she could go back in time, do it all over again, a different way. Then she passes out because she's drunk sure. with this smashed head lying beside her. <laughs> this can't be good. And when she wakes up, it's getting dark. So she puts the head into the ground and says a prayer over it. This head is never going to be found. Oh, really? Never. Oh, wow. When she gets home, when Linda gets home, the bag that carried the head all day is burned in the fireplace. But what she doesn't know is a day after they initially buried the head, a man named Lawrence Keegan, a retired army private, was in the park alone to drink and smoke. Mm -hmm. He sat on the same park bench in the same location where the head was buried, and he notices what he thinks is the top of somebody's head with short, dark hair wow. protruding from the ground. Wow! He tries to dig it up with the toe of his boot, but he fails. And he's thinking, I wonder if this is the head that belongs to the body in the canal. <laughs> wow. But after the Irish football jersey is seen by a friend of Farah's, an actual Somalian man, mm-hmm. he goes to the police and says, I have a friend, Farah Noor, and he's been missing for the past week or so. And he had a T-shirt just like that. Hey. And he tells the authorities that his friend Farah was involved with Kathleen Mulhall. Wow. So the police go to Kathleen and she tells them that Farah had left her. And the Friday before when Farah was alive, he didn't show up for work. So it kind of worked into her alibi. And on that day, Kathleen told his employer that Farrell was away minding a sick baby and she didn't know when he would be returning. Okay. Now, she didn't know that he was they were going to kill him that weekend, but it did play into her. She used what happened as part of her alibi. When Farrell's friend actually speaks with the authorities, he tells them that Ireland football jersey. Yeah. He was wearing it over St. Patrick's Day weekend. Uh, That's what I saw him in. Okay. And the last time I saw him, he was wearing that, and that's what he had on in the canal. And after Farrah's friend makes his statement, Linda, Charlotte, and Kathleen all become suspects. Ah. And the detectives found their way to Kathleen's flat at Richmond Cottages on May 21st, 2005. But Kathleen had left this flat. It was no longer her home. So police are thinking, maybe these two did break up and she left. They're giving her the benefit of the doubt. But a woman named Katrina Burke was the new resident in the flat, and she agreed to let the police look inside the flat. She wants to help them in any way possible. She tells them she hasn't noticed anything out of the ordinary about the flat after Kathleen had lived there. But then on second thought, She tells the detective that she did remember a big blue ring on the floor Mm. at the bedroom door and some missing carpet. Carpet was something she just happened upon when she moved a double bed and realized there was no carpet underneath it, just a concrete floor. It was all patched up just to give the impression that there was carpet there. And when the authorities really start looking, it seemed as though the carpet at the window of the patio door had been hacked. Mm. But police don't see any bloodstains with the naked eye. But they're thinking, we've got to do forensics. And on May 26th, the forensic team goes into the flat and takes swabs, hoping to match Farrah's DNA. Little luminol? Not yet, but it's coming. I love it that you're so into it now. You know what luminol is. I'm so proud of you. Uh, well, you know, that's like me knowing what an aria is or well, something. You know, you can you can teach an old dog new tricks. <laughs> Meanwhile, Kathleen is asking around about Farah. She's trying to make it seem that she's just desperate to locate him. And on May 23rd, she goes to a community welfare officer to tell them she was worried about Farah. 
She tells Dermot Farrelly that she doesn't know his whereabouts. She asks if they have any addresses for him, but this raises suspicion. And what they do is go to the records of Farrah and see that this couple had had a very violent history. Mm. He had beaten her up, broken her fingers and even her ribs before. She'd been hospitalized a bunch while she was in this volatile relationship with Farrah. When they interview the old neighbors, they discover that Farrah referred to Kathleen as a f- bitch. Oh, wow. <laughs> they didn't mince words, did they? Nope. nope. But they remained together even after they moved into the flat number one Richmond Cottages, the home where Farrah disappeared from. Okay. So they've talked to all their old neighbors. Right. Then the authorities get a call from two members of the Mulhall family brothers, John Jr. and James, who were both doing time in Wheatfield Prison. Mm. And these two say that they're in a position to supply information on the identity of the body. What do they want in return, let me think? Oh, I know, right? (laughs) But not only this, they say they can also name the perpetrators of the crime and identify the crime scene. Wow. That's your family turning on you. Yeah, yeah. These two boys tell the authorities that Farah is the victim and he's a former boyfriend of their mother, Kathleen. Mm. They go on to say that the scene of the murder was the flat at Richmond Cottages. And these two won't make an official statement, but they continue to give the police information. So they're not actually looking for their sentence to be reduced because they're not giving an official statement. They're just being helpful so that they're looked upon in a better light. Just nice family members. Yes. (laughs) Meanwhile, the investigation is gathering momentum. Mm. Everybody is sure that Farrah was a victim, but it's confirmed on July 15th when the DNA came back, it matched that of his son. And not only that, his DNA matched with 99% certainty the blood samples found at the Richmond cottages, those swabs that they took. That's pretty much 99%. Okay. That's it. Yeah. It's him. (laughs) It's Farah. On July 21st, the forensic team comes into the flat at one Richmond cottages and uses luminol. Luminol. There it is. It lit up like the 4th of July. (laughs) Oh, I shouldn't say that. A Christmas tree because we're in Ireland. (laughs) Y'all don't celebrate the 4th of July. That's just the Yanks. And now the authorities have enough evidence to contemplate making an arrest. Mm. They had four suspects in mind, John Sr., Kathleen, Linda, and Charlotte. Gotcha. On August 3rd, it was decided that Linda, Charlotte, Kathleen, and John Mulhall Sr. were all to be arrested under Section 4 of the Criminal Law Act 1977 for murder. Wow. Even John. Yeah. They go to arrest Linda. She's visibly stunned, clutches her pearls. (gasps) (laughs) Although she's been waiting for this day for some time, she really didn't know what to say or how to react. She had rehearsed it a million times in her head. She's taken to the station. At the same time, Charlotte is arrested. She's shocked when she's approached, Mm. but says nothing. She was taken by car to Mount Joy Garda Station for her interrogation. Gotcha. And Kathleen was walking along Summer Hill Parade, not far from the canal where they had dumped Farrah's body parts. <laughs> An unmarked patrol car pulls up beside her and tells her, we're bringing you in so we can chat a little bit. Mm. She, too, was driven to Mount Joy Station. Okay. Now, the father... John was arrested in South Dublin, and police don't think that John had anything to do with the death, but they do think he helped with the cover-up. So that's why they want to chat with him. Detectives spent hours interviewing each of them. None of them said anything of importance. Instead, they sometimes retained their right to silence or gave varying accounts of their movements. Mm. On that day, March 20th, 2005, I was here, I was there, maybe I was here, I don't remember. The one thing they had in common was a full denial of any role in the murder. (laughs) Kathleen said that Farrah was still alive somewhere and she had been desperately trying to locate him. She could even give the names of several people who she had asked about him. 
But she's released without charges 12 hours later. And while some people thought this was the possible end of the investigation, these arrests, it's really just the beginning. beginning. All four of them are panicking. John tells their daughter, Marie, that he had absolutely nothing to do with the murder of Farah. And while Linda had been terrified in the beginning when she was first arrested, she interpreted her release from custody as a sign that there's no evidence against her. It kind of restored her confidence because they brought him in and then they let him all go. Yeah. But that's not going to last long. Meanwhile, the sister Marie, who'd been told the whole story by Charlotte in the beginning, Mm -hmm. but didn't really believe it. Yeah, she's really worried about her dad. She's very close to him. And she knows he had absolutely nothing to do with this. Marie actually confronts Linda and tells her that if she did not go to the police and tell them exactly what she knew, that she would tell them the story that Charlotte had told her about Farrah's murder. Wow. Yeah. Jeez. So two brothers snitching in jail and a sister who's like, I'm going to give up the goods. Their father, John, is desperately trying to protect his daughters, no matter what they've done. And at the same time, he could not wrap his head around the idea that his daughters had murdered and dismembered a body. I don't know how you accept that at all. Yeah. Wow. And remember, John's ego was completely bruised. He was devastated by Kathleen's decision to end their marriage. And he moved this guy into their house while he was still living there. It's just crazy. And now the man who had taken his wife is dead, and he was going to take his two daughters as well. That's the way John felt about it. On the morning of August 17th, 2005, John calls Detective Sergeant Hickey, a guy who always seemed to be in the middle of the investigation. John tells him that he wants to talk. I want to talk. And when they get together with him a little bit later that day, they realize he's just trying to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. But he was making it clear that he did not want to be charged as an accessory to this murder. And he tells the police he wants them to talk to Linda, that she's a good girl. She's a good woman. And he was sure that she would tell the truth. He tells him that Linda is terrified and he was afraid for her. Now, this meeting doesn't even last 10 minutes, but they got more information in this one little 10 minute meeting than they ever had before. Because they're all, it's starting to crack. Sure. The whole thing is starting to crack open. That night, they show up at the home of the Mulhalls in Kilclare Gardens in Tala. Linda isn't home, but John Sr. invites the investigators in, asks them if they want some tea, mm-hmm. a cuppa. A cup of tea. I learned that one, a cuppa. <laughs> but Linda never makes it home. Linda has been admitted to the hospital after trying to cut her wrist. Oh, wow. So they're getting close. She started freaking yeah. out. Yeah. Wow. But they see that Linda clearly feels remorse. Mm -hmm. But when she's out of the hospital and the authorities come back to John's house, she refuses to talk. Mm. She just sat in the corner staring at the ground. Mm. So Detective Mangan starts to make small talk and asks her about the scratches on her arms. And then Linda starts talking. She tells him that she had cut herself. And when the police tell her that she needs to look after herself... And they urge her to tell the truth for her own sake. Hmm. He tells her that he believed she knew where Farrah's head was buried. Linda doesn't confess, but the detective basically says, this isn't going away. I'm not going away. Then casually, he mentions to her that her two brothers in jail had pretty much given her and her sister Charlotte up. And still, Linda says nothing. And when they leave, John Sr.'s phone rings. It's his daughter, Marie. She wants to go to the police to tell them what Charlotte told her in a drunken stupor. Okay. Soon after, Linda called Detective Mangan saying, I need to talk to you. I need to speak with you. And Detective Mangan shows back up at John Sr.'s home and finds Linda in a bedroom crying uncontrollably. She confesses that, yes, she, along with her sister Charlotte, murdered and dismembered Farrah Knorr. She gave up the goods. She tells police that she'd moved Farrah's head from Timon Park North to another park and that all three of them, herself, Charlotte, and Kathleen, had buried the head. And now they know Kathleen's in on it, too, because her daughter just said so. Linda agrees to meet with them again, but when they go looking for the head, it wasn't found where Linda said it would be. You know, she buried it after she asked for his forgiveness. 
When they re-question Linda, she tells them about the ecstasy. She tells them that she started out with 10 pills that day. Her mother only crushed one to give it to Farah, and her mother took one, which meant that she and her sister Charlotte had taken the other eight. Gee, man. Yeah. Wow. She tells them her father had nothing to do with the murder, and she also says that she doesn't remember a lot, but she knows they went down to the canal to drop off body parts about, quote, six times. When they ask her about Farrah's clothes, she tells them, I don't remember. What she does know is that any jewelry he was wearing, Charlotte took it and sold it or gave it away. Okay. They then took her to the flat where they killed Farah. Linda couldn't look anybody in the face. She cried uncontrollably, being placed back at the scene of the murder. And the police are thinking, okay, she helped, but she can't be the one who orchestrated this whole thing. She showed them the areas where they drank on the boardwalk in central Dublin, where she and Charlotte took the ecstasy. Then she led them to the Ballybrock Bridge to show them where they dumped the body parts. It's around this time that police realize that Farah Noor is actually Shalila Salim, born in 1965 in Mombasa, Kenya. September 13th, 2005, Linda is arrested based on her confession. They go pick her up in the morning after her children have left for school. Linda doesn't know that her mother, Kathleen, has been arrested as well. She tells police that Farah had threatened to kill her, saying, quote, I'm going to f- kill you just like I did with that whore in Dunleary. Wow. She tells him that Farah, quote, ran out to the kitchen and got a knife. He said, Kathleen, I'm going to chop you up into little pieces, put you in the fridge and eat you piece by piece. <laughs> he said, no one will ever find you. Wow. Yeah. Not a good guy. No, no. Yes. She also says that after he calmed down, he said that if she ever told the police, he would kill her or her family. And that he took his stuff and left. So Kathleen has made this whole story up. And that's it. He takes his stuff and he leaves. But they already know the truth. She's just in there digging herself a big old grave. Making it worse. She tells authorities that Farah moved out the week before March 20th. And when she asked for his set of keys to her house, he said no, that he was keeping the keys. And I told him to keep the keys and to f*** off. And then he said, quote, you will never get away from me, end quote. (laughs) So she's making him out to be this horrible guy. And I'm not so certain that this exchange didn't happen. But now she said that he left the weekend of St. Patrick's Day and everybody saw them together in town. Not not the brightest. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You got to get your story straight. Now, even though Linda is making an appearance in district court on murder charges, Charlotte is not saying a word. She hoped against all hope that she would be spared further inquiries from the authorities. Yeah, I don't think that's going to happen. Yeah. And to survive mentally, Charlotte convinces herself that she was untouchable. And in reality, she was just as vulnerable as her sister who had already confessed. So she's just making stuff up in her mind now. It's self-preservation, right? she's panicked and she's just trying to think of anything that might stick to the wall. Yeah. Yeah. Four weeks after the appearance of her sister in court on the morning of October 17th, Charlotte had gotten into more trouble. There was a warrant out for her arrest in relation to a number of minor charges. She's picked up and taken to the Mount Joy station for interrogation. Charlotte put on this tough guy act, but she was afraid and she's lying to them over and over and over. And when police tell her that they think that she is in a position to help with the investigation into Farah's death, Charlotte says, I am. I am. They ask her if she's prepared to tell the whole truth. And Charlotte took a deep breath and lied. Quote, I wasn't in the flat when it happened, end quote. She tells detectives that she and Linda, from 10 until 5 or 6 in the morning, they were out. They were out on the town drinking. Mm -hmm. And they say to her, are you aware that your sister told us that she was in the flat? (laughs) And Charlotte says, I am. I don't know why she told you that. 
And when they ask her, when was the last time you saw Farah? She tells them it was just before they left the flat on the 20th of March. And when they asked how she remembered the date, she said, well, because the next day was my birthday. So Charlotte's lying through her teeth and the authorities aren't buying it. So they ask her, why would your sister lie? And Charlotte said, quote, because we promised my mom we would say we did it, end quote. Oh, wow. She's about to throw her mother, Kathleen, under the bus. Wow. She admits that she had helped to dump the body parts and took money from Farrah's bank account. But she said that she killed nobody. And neither had her sister, Linda. Mm. Throwing mom right under the bus. She's a pretty good storyteller. But the authorities look at her and say, so if we look at CCTV on that night between 10 p.m. and 6 a.m., you're telling us we're going to see you. And she says, yeah. And the detective goes, yeah, that's not true. (laughs) It's not true. They ask Charlotte about the assault against her mother by Farah, And she says, yeah, he broke her ribs. And they ask if they were arguing that day. And she said, yes. And the authorities say, so you're telling us that when you left your mother and Farah, they were arguing. And Charlotte says, quote, I was sick of listening to them, end quote. (laughs) She's good. She tells them that when they get back at 6 a.m. the next morning, the bags with the body parts were sitting in the flat and in the bathroom. Wow. And that she helped to take them down to the canal at about 7.30 a.m. And when they asked where Farah's head is, she says, quote, I don't know. My mom had it, end quote. <laughs> wow. Dear old mom. And when they ask about his penis, she says, quote, I don't know. She talks about dumping the body parts and then going back to the flat. But the next question is kind of, it's going to reveal how she was a part of the murder and the dismemberment of this body. When they ask her what Farah is cut up with, she tells them that her mother said she cut him up with a knife. And when they ask how did she overpower him, she tells them she hit him with a hammer. Mm -hmm. Finally, when the police ask her if she just wants to tell the truth, do you just want to come clean? Charlotte hesitates, stares at the floor once more, then takes a deep breath and begins to sob. Mm. And then she said, quote, everything that Linda says happened. Oh, wow. End quote. Really? Yes. Whoa. Yeah. Where'd that come from? Out of the blue. They just keep pushing her and pushing her. But she had to know. She had told so many lies and they were like, that's not true. We would see you on CCTV if you were out all night. We know it's you. Linda got all the facts straight. Linda and Charlotte were both charged with murder and pleaded not guilty in the Central Criminal Court. Their trial took place in October 2006, with Linda Mulhall being found guilty of manslaughter, while her sister Charlotte was found guilty of the murder of Farah Noor. Linda's jury accepted her defense of provocation, meaning she was coerced into helping to murder Farah. Charlotte Mulhall was given the mandatory life sentence. And Linda Mulhall was given a 15-year sentence for manslaughter. And the judge argued that Linda, a heroin addict, had initially tried to halt the trial by refusing to take methadone. So they don't really help themselves out at every turn. Linda appealed the severity of her sentence on the grounds that it was passed without psychiatric and probation reports. This, This appeal failed with the Court of Criminal Appeal, finding the sentence to be Appropriate. Of course. Charlotte requested an appeal for her conviction on the grounds that Justice Carney had put pressure on the jury to reach a verdict, even though the foreman had indicated they were deadlocked. Mm. And this failed on the grounds that the defense did not raise objections to the comments during the trial and the fact that the jury was not affected by any alleged undue pressure to reach a verdict. So they're really, they're grasping at straws for stuff. Once again, what can we throw at the walls that's going to stick? Absolutely. Meanwhile, Kathleen has gotten this sentence, but while her daughters are actually on trial, she's flown the coop. She leaves Ireland. Yeah. She returns February of 2008 and is promptly charged with, among other things, two counts of giving false information and withholding information, which she knew would be of assistance in prosecuting her daughters for Farah's murder. Of course. She was also charged with impeding an arrest in the murder investigation. 
She pleaded guilty to helping to clean up the crime scene in order to conceal evidence. Wow. Kathleen was sentenced to five years in prison in May of 2009. Yeah, because uh, as you stated earlier, that she didn't do anything as far as hitting him, killing him, crushing bones, doing all that stuff. She just sort of sat back and... I think she was sitting at the kitchen table smoking. She was just having a smoke while the girls are just lopping off his body parts with a serrated knife. What a mom. Now, the murder was very hard on Charlotte and Linda's father, John. Mm. He hanged himself in Phoenix Park when his daughters were charged with the murder in December 2005. Yeah, so sad. Yeah. In 2009, Linda claimed to fellow inmates that she had, in fact, smashed Farah's head and distributed the fragments in trash cans in the Phoenix Park. Mm. This is the first disclosure of where Ferris had ended up. And it was referred to as the, quote, the final secret of the Scissor Sisters, end quote, by Cormac Looney in the Evening Herald. And that is where they got their name. (laughs) A journalist named them the Scissor Scissor Sisters. Sisters. Mm -hmm. Their brother James pled guilty to the robbery of two prostitutes, claiming he robbed the women in order to support his own six children and his sister Linda's four children, whom he took in after she was jailed. Then Charlotte caused controversy when in 2008, photographs of her jokingly holding a knife to the throat of a male prisoner were leaked to the press. By the way, both Linda and Charlotte were imprisoned at the Mount Joy prison where they lived right next to each other. Really? Yeah. But after the knife photo, Charlotte is sent to Limerick prison where she has been terribly lonely because no one comes to see her. There once was a girl named Charlotte. (laughs) (laughs) I also read that she was sent to Limerick because she was having a fling with a female officer at the prison. Quote, I am lonely and sad due to lack of visits from my family, end quote. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think that family is going to be visiting very often. Yeah. Linda was released after doing 12 of her 15 years in 2018. She has refused to speak to the media since being released. I want to point out that there were plenty of people who said that these two women and their mother took out a known rapist and murderer. And I don't doubt that. He was a rapist. He was a murderer. He was not a good person. But you can't murder people because they're assholes. Yeah, exactly. And these two sisters were high and drunk. And who knows if they thought they actually knew what was going on, if they thought it was real or not. And their upbringing was troubled for sure. And their own father beat them and their mother wanted to be their friend. It's a hot mess. But once again, you cannot murder someone for being an asshole. So Charlotte sits in jail. Linda is now out. But that is the story of Linda and Charlotte Mulhall, the Scissor Sisters. And that's all I have to say about that. Hey, Hitch to Homicide listeners. Have you read any good books lately? Or have you listened to any good books? All of the Sex and Lies series books, as well as the Jane Doe series, are available on Audible and iTunes. Hotter than hell in half of Alabama, the Sex and Lies series begins with Sex, Lies, and Sweet Tea. There are nine books to listen to in that series alone. Left as a newborn to die in a dumpster, she has no name. Tossed from foster home to foster home, she has no family. With no known past, she's deemed a perfect fit for a task force Washington denies exists. A selective assassin for the United States government, Jane Doe tracks down known terrorists on domestic soil. The Jane Doe books have been called a bit military, a bit assassin, and a bit genius. Start the new year by listening to a good book by me, Chris Calvert, on Audible or iTunes. Or if you'd like to read, go to chriscalvert.com and download some free books. And thanks for being a listener of Hitch to Homicide. Well, that uh, that's a St. Patty's Day story. I do my best. <laughs> oh my gosh. I do my best. What a I do my messed best. Up family. It was. And such so sad yeah. because, you know, everybody they went to jail. I think almost all of those kids went to jail. Not Marie. She was she was really good. Right. But the mom's in jail. The dad commits suicide. The yeah. girls are in jail. Yeah. yeah the whole thing. It's a lot. Just all fell apart. It's a lot. Fell apart. 
It's a lot. Well, let's uh, let's lighten it up a little bit and do a little. Well, bless your heart. All right, I've got four of them for you today. Okay. The first one, don't crush me, bro. (laughs) When the police arrested 18-year-old Benjamin C. Hopp, he only had on a sweatshirt, red boxers, and a white sock on his left foot. One sock, okay. Why, you ask? Well, a few hours earlier, he had broken into the home of an old and rather, let's say, rotund bartender who wrestled the kid to the ground and made him cry (gasps) before he squirmed out of his shoes and pants and ran from the house. (laughs) Hopefully he learned his lesson and will do the right thing from this point forward. (laughs) That's what drinking green beer on St. Patrick's Day will do for you. All right. Number two. Thanks for the gumball, Mickey. (laughs) Graham Price of South Wales was a hardworking and honest employee who couldn't hide how grateful he was to his bosses, even when he decided to rip off the bank where he worked. Oh. So before he stole the money he needed, he was sure to leave a note with a signature explaining, borrowed seven million pounds. Thank you. I owe you. (laughs) He was found apprehended and prosecuted. Yeah, yeah, that's not going to help him. Yeah. All right. Number three, follow the yellow brick road. <laughs> okay. One of the most unusual comical criminal cases we've ever heard about has occurred in Hickory, North Carolina. I used to live in oh! North Carolina. I, uh, we know where yeah, Hickory yeah. is. A totally amateur thief invaded Captain Galley's restaurant and picked up the cash register, but didn't notice a little detail. A trail of white cash register tape hanging from the machine. The police followed it 50 yards to his apartment, finding him cracking open the register. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Are you serious? Yeah. yeah, it's bad enough when you have toilet paper on your shoe. But, I mean, come on. <laughs> yeah. All right. And number four, she'll keep an eye out for you. A 56-year-old <laughs> Swedish woman made one of the most ludicrous claims you'll ever hear in your lifetime. What's that? What did she say? Okay. During her trial for drunk driving, she claimed that the alcohol could not affect her driving because she kept one eye open to avoid seeing double. (laughs) 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 The judges, the judge laughed and sentenced her to two months in prison. I bet. So there you go. There's your four. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. I'm only using one eye when you need to use two, so you're getting two months in prison. Exactly. Oh, bless their hearts. Bless their hearts. Yeah. Well, if you have a bless your heart or you know somebody's heart who needs a blessing, mm-hmm. go to hitchtohomicide.com. There's a pull-down menu. You can also suggest a case. We're going to get to one of those next week. Yep. I'm very excited. Been doing lots of research. Nice. I hope everybody has a wonderful St. Patrick's yes. Day. I am going to leave you with one more limerick. (laughs) Here we go. (laughs) I did my research. I just have to give it to you. Go for it. On the breast of a woman named Gail was tattooed the price of her tail. And on her behind, for the sake of the blind, the same information in Braille. (laughs) (laughs) And that's all I have to say about that. That's my wonderful husband out there. That's my crazy, beautiful bride in the booth. Join us next time on Hitch to Homicide. Bye, y'all.